So today we have the opportunity to invite back to Twin Cities Church our favorite Aussie, and uh, he's uh, David Timms from William Jesby University. He's a professor there, and he is from Australia, so you will delight in his accent. But better than his accent is what he has to bring to us out of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, David has spoke with us here before at Twin Cities Church. He's spoken for, a, for our men's retreat in the past, and, and uh, he's a real delight, a person who really loves the Lord, and he loves the Bible and God's Word, and I'm looking forward to what he's going to share with us today. Would you invite onto the stage David Timms? Thanks, John. Well, good morning, everybody, and what a pleasure to be with you. I am an Aussie, and that means you won't understand the first 10 minutes, and you'll kind of catch up with me uh, at some point along the way, but uh, I was back in Australia a month ago, and my niece said, Uncle David, you don't sound like you have an accent. I went, yes, good, because <laughs> I didn't want to stand out over there, and uh, so if uh, there's a little bit of a problem, it's because I've just been back there recently, but nice to be with you and uh, to bring greetings from William Jessup University. And you're a partner church with us, and thank you so much. Uh, this is move-in weekend. So yesterday, actually all this week, students have been coming back, uh, whether it's music camp or athletic uh, teams. And uh, now we'll have uh, everybody starting classes tomorrow, and uh, it's high energy levels. You know, the summer kind of dips a little bit. It's a handful of people around, and then the students come back, and we're all jumping into it, and feels great. There'll be probably 17 or 1800 students at Jessup this, this semester, uh, undergrad and grad and online and adult degree completion and uh, God's just doing a neat thing there and uh, thank you for your support. We really do appreciate it. It makes a great difference. I had a, a parent ask yesterday in a panel, hey, how do, how do students afford to come to a place like this? <laughs> it's actually far more affordable than parents realise. And, and the answer was in part because of the generosity of churches and individuals and others who also support what they're doing. So uh, come with greetings and also with gratitude. Thank you. Hey, I've got the best verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There's no question about that. Ron said, hey, would you come and maybe speak? And here it is, chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. And I said, oh, of course I'd come and speak on those verses. I don't know that I've ever preached on these verses before, but I just love them. And, and they are fairly well known to us, I'm sure. I don't know if you've ever asked the question, God, what is your will for my life? I've asked that question. What is God's will for my life? I asked it when I was a high school kid, and I was wondering, okay, what should I go study? What should I do with the rest of my life? God, what's your will for my life? I asked it when I got to college. I came over here to study uh, back in the Middle Ages, and uh, when I got here, I'm asking, what is your will for my life, particularly with regards to a marriage partner, right? God, what girl might I spend the rest of my life with? God, who are you going to bring my way? I asked the question again when I was looking at going back to Australia to plant churches. God, where do you want us to plant a church? I asked the question again when my wife Kim was diagnosed with cancer and we had two small boys and it didn't look good and I was asking the question, God, what is your will for my life? I asked it again coming up from Southern California to Northern California eight years ago. God, what is your will for my life? And all of us at, at major turning points in our lives probably ask that question. And I suspect it's got less to do with wanting to know God's will. It's just wanting to know the future. 
be really nice if I could just get a glimpse in the crystal ball if such a thing existed, right? I just want to know that somebody's got their hands on the wheel and can show me the map from time to time. And I frame it, God, what's your will for my life? I just want to be able to see ahead a little bit. Well, the Thessalonians had the same kind of question. They're asking the question because if you were here through this series, you would have heard Ron speak in the very first week of the series and say, hey, the Thessalonian Christians were expecting Jesus to return any moment and he hadn't come back yet. He still hasn't. And they're asking the question, when's he coming back? And some people have died and, and we're wondering what's happening to them and they're starting to get a little anxious about things. And, and perhaps they're asking the question to God, what is your plan? Where is all of this going? What have you got in mind for us? And now we come to the end of the letter and Paul lays out in almost these last few verses what I think is a bit of a bombshell actually. I think he lays out for us God's will for our lives. Let's read it together. It's verses 12 through 18. Paul says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. We'd say here that would be elders and staff and, and those who, who are volunteers and leading ministries. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. It's like, tunk, 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 right? He's just firing out a whole bunch of things. It's like when Paul does this sometimes. He comes to the end of a letter, it's like, oh, I've got so much to say and so little time to say it. <laughs> and he just throws it all out. Uh, read Romans chapter 12 again sometime. You get a lot of it there as well. Just all of these instructions. And then this, verses 16, 17, and 18. Three verses, one sentence. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, and then, then the punchline, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A single sentence, and God's will laid out for us right there. It's an incredibly powerful statement, it's incredibly powerful, and I'm going to say to you this morning, next to impossible. Rejoice always. Uh, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is how God wants us to live. Rejoice always, we, we, we start there. Just a quick aside, uh, if I ask some of you, if any of you are Bible nerds, you play Bible trivia, I, I don't like trivia games, <laughs> I lose them all the time. But, but one of the questions that sometimes pops up is, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? And some people say, John 11.35, Jesus wept. And in your English Bible, that's true. But you can, you can stump some people. This is actually the shortest verse in the Bible. Rejoice always. By two letters <laughs> in the Greek. Rejoice always. Easier said than done, isn't it? We have a small group that meets in my home every other Thursday night. Um, eight couples get together. It was nine. One of them moved down to San Diego. It's the only way you can leave our small group, apparently. You've got to travel to Idaho or San Diego, and that's what's happened more recently. So eight couples get together. And I started thinking about the eight of us. We got together this last Thursday night to start our fall schedule. Two of those couples have had children who have passed away. And virtually every other couple has children battling with addiction, depression, unemployment. 
kids who are ill, kids who can't find the motivation to get out of the home and look for a job, kids addicted to gaming and other things. And there's a tremendous amount of heartache if you just talk about parenting. That's every couple in my group. This is not a recovery group. It's not a support group. We call it a Bible listen group. We just read scripture and listen to it together and talk about it. And every couple has plenty of pain and anguish and hurt and disappointment. Rejoice always. Maybe you had a phone call from the doctor's office this week and, uh, and that's been very preoccupying for you. It's all you've been able to think about the last few days. Maybe it's not about you, maybe it's about a parent or a child. That's all you can think about. Rejoice always. Maybe there's somebody at work who's really making life difficult. Maybe your work situation is really uncomfortable and it's pretty tough and you lie awake late at night thinking about it, almost dreading the next day, fearing the conversations that you're going to have to have. Rejoice always? Question mark. Maybe you got a letter in the mail. They don't come very often, but maybe it was a legal letter and maybe this letter has told you that there are certain demands that are going to place you in financial straits. Rejoice always. It sounds overly optimistic to me, and I'm, a, I'm an optimist. <laughs> rejoice always. Rejoice most of the time. How about just rejoice when things look really good? But how do we do that? How do we rejoice always without, without kidding ourselves, without being dishonest with ourselves, without being less than authentic? Because there is enough pain and heartache and hurt and disappointment to absolutely bury most of us. How do we do that? I think part of how we do that is we, we take into account the bigger worldview that Paul has. And in fact, that the early believers had. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people who have died and gone on to glory before us and who are watching us, since they form this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then this, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. That's how you do it. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I'm so glad the writer says, scorning the shame, despising the shame. Because none of us should get the impression that Jesus hung on the cross and went, oh, this is a good time. (laughs) I'm going to laugh in the face of this hardship. There's nothing laughable about it. There's nothing enjoyable, nothing pleasant about the cross. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, the joy of eternity, the joy of seeing a world that is reached out to with the love of God, with that joy endures the cross and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, we rejoice always not by trying to find a silver lining behind every cloud. Hey, always look on the bright side of life. You know, you start singing that and not always easy to do, is it? 
We rejoice always not by trying to see the glass half full instead of half empty. Hey, you just got the wrong perspective on life. No, we rejoice always not by telling ourselves that it's not as bad as it could be because frankly tomorrow it might get worse. I don't want to tell you that at church, but it might. We rejoice always not by some psychological trick or some pop culture technique. We rejoice always by setting our eyes on Jesus and the same things that he himself set his eyes on. Paul can then write these words to the Corinthians, not the Thessalonians, but this is, this is Paul who is just in sharing his heart with the whole, the, the, the whole church of the day. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I'm reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying about in our bodies the dying of Jesus. We know what it feels like to face death almost daily. But we do that so that the life of Jesus also may be revealed in our bodies. And now I flip over to verses 16 and 17. He says, so we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction, whether it's the phone call or the letter in the mail, the email or the late night conversation, the phone call or the text, all of this is momentary light affliction and it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen those things are eternal. Rejoice always. There's only one way to do that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We hurry on. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually, as the NIV puts it. Whoa. Paul doesn't say, hey, pray regularly. He says, pray constantly. Pray without ceasing. He doesn't say pray each morning. It's pray without ceasing. Oh, my goodness. How do you do that? How, how do you pray without ceasing many people in this world are just trying to make ends meet they're just trying to survive uh, earlier this summer i was down in ecuador doing some teaching with pastors in a in churches in a big city called guayaquil right on the coast and i met a venezuelan refugee a young woman with a young child she only arrived in the country a few weeks earlier she is one of nearly five million Five million Venezuelans who have fled that country in the last eight months because of the corruption, the violence, the economic uh, downturn, the poverty. Five million of them have left and I met her. She had no family there, no man to support her or help her. She knew nobody and she had no job. I met her because the couple I was staying with two days before had met her and, and realized her desperate straits and had offered her a job just cleaning and helping with household chores at their home for the short term. And she came in with smiles on her face, so grateful for a job, 
and a way to make a little money in Ecuador. And I thought, how in the world, or why in the world, does a woman with a baby, with a young child, leave and head into the complete unknown like that? She is in an incredibly vulnerable position. Pray without ceasing. How do you say that to someone in those circumstances? Pray without ceasing. This is the will of God for you. She just needs food on the table tonight for her and her young child. She needs a place to stay that's safe. Pray without ceasing. It can, it can sound terribly pious, can't it? That kind of prayer sounds like it belongs to the comfortable and the people who've got time, the, the retired, those who are well off. Or maybe it belongs to those who are single and devoted to a monastic lifestyle. But what about the rest of us? Pray without ceasing. How do you do that? Well, I suspect how we do it is we change our understanding of the word prayer. See, if I asked you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey, just tell your neighbor what prayer is, some of us at least would say, prayer is talking to God. That's a part of prayer. But if prayer is talking to God, I'm telling you, I, I don't pray without ceasing. I don't have that many words in me. Kim will tell you that when I get home after work <laughs> and I'm quiet and she's ready to start chatting. <laughs> it's like, I don't have that many words in me to pray like that without ceasing. I suspect we can redefine prayer this way. And this is how I define prayer. I have done for a long time. It's just attentiveness to God. Attentiveness to God. See, prayer is not closing our eyes and mumbling constantly. In fact, to pray without ceasing is to do just the opposite. It's to open our eyes and to listen more carefully. It's to listen and to look more than it is to say and to speak. That's how we pray without ceasing. What is God doing in and through and around and because of and for you, and sometimes despite you. What's he, what's he really doing? I pray without ceasing when I have eyes looking constantly for what he's doing in my life. This is his will for my life, so I want to get it right. <laughs> and I get it right when I start to look carefully at what he's doing and how he is working in and around me. Charles Spurgeon once said, we may speak a thousand words which seem to be prayer and yet never pray. And on the other hand, we may cry into God's ear most effectually and yet never say a word. That's prayer. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I pray without ceasing, even when I don't have words to say. God, uh, my mind goes to my kids, my mind goes to my co-workers, my mind goes to my neighbors, it goes to my friends in my life group. And all I, all I can sometimes muster up is a, uh, and somehow in that moment, the Spirit of God takes all of this within me and translates it and the Father hears it. 
pray without ceasing. And sometimes, sometimes use words. We are somewhat trained to open our mouths in prayer. We are barely trained to open our eyes. And maybe the prayer this week for some of you, maybe the next step prayer for some of you this week to fulfill the will of God in your life is just to say, God, open my eyes today. God, open my eyes today. Help me see you. Pray that all day long. God, open my eyes right now. God, in this meeting with this person, open my eyes. Help me to understand. God, just open my eyes. Eyes, help me to see. And we'll be praying without ceasing. What is God's will for our life? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. We don't give thanks for everything. We give thanks in everything. The first would be crazy, right? There are a lot of things we don't give thanks for. Who gives thanks for the the impact of sin in this world? Nobody, right? That'd be crazy. But we do give thanks in everything because that is transformational. William Barclay said, If we face the sun, the shadows will fall behind us. But if we turn our backs on the sun, the shadows will be in front of us. Isn't that true? How do you give thanks For in every circumstance, you do it by looking to the sun. And gratitude changes a life. There's a guy by the name of Robert Emmons. He's a world leader in gratitude research. What? (laughs) Who gets to research gratitude? Well, he, he spent a lifetime writing on gratitude and he's discovered what I think most of us know rather intuitively... And that is that gratitude aids in a lot of different ways, ways, including it blocks the toxic emotions that we have like envy and resentment and regret and depression. The gratitude, giving thanks in all circumstances, in everything, give thanks. This gratitude, it actually changes our lives. When we set up camp... In the negativity world, when we, when we sort of go that route, when we pitch our tent in, in this negative country, I suspect that you and I become victims very quickly of, the, of two very powerful forces. There are two forces that are always coming at me. And I don't know if these are, are Satan's ploys or if, if something else is going on, but there are two forces that always come at me. And it's always the if-onlys and the what-ifs. Do you you ever have to face and deal with those? If only only I'd made a different decision. If only I'd started exercising a little earlier. (laughs) Maybe I wouldn't be in here having heart surgery right now. If only I had been a little more prudent with my finances. If only I'd taken time to talk more with my kids when they were growing up. If only, if only, and every if only becomes more serious. And the if-onlys, what they do is they breed deep regret within me. Because they're always grounded in the past. I'm always looking backwards. And I'm always wondering what might have happened if only I'd done something different. Well, the reality is I can't change yesterday. I've only got today. But the what-ifs also come into play. And I lie in bed at, la- at night and, and I find myself thinking through the what if tomorrow in this conversation he says and then I say and then he says and I say and I have an entirely fictitious conversation that actually never happens. It never goes the way I imagine it's going to go. What if I lose my job? What if my son or daughter doesn't 
doesn't follow Christ as closely as I hope they might. What, what if I get sick? And if the if-onlys breed regret, then the what-ifs breed fear. And I start looking back to yesterday with regret and I start looking toward tomorrow with fear and I completely lose sight of the present and what God has called me to be grateful for in the here and the now. I think the the life of gratitude, this part of the will of God, is enormously powerful because what it does is it offsets the if-onlys and the what-ifs. Some of you have probably come in this morning with some if-onlys and what-ifs on your mind. What if tomorrow when I get to work, such and such takes place, so-and-so says this, so-and-so finds out that. Some of you are already thinking back to last week or last month. If only, if only this summer had been a little bit better organised. If only I had... You're already living in that place as well. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for your life. Eddie Rickenbacker was uh, the most decorated pilot of World War One, Most decorated American pilot. He was an ace pilot and he came back and everybody was celebrating this guy. He was an extraordinary fellow. His story is quite quite amazing. Uh, When World War II came around, he was too old to serve as a pilot. But President Roosevelt decided to use him as an emissary on one occasion. Um, In the the Pacific, uh, General Douglas MacArthur had had been making some comments about the government and Roosevelt didn't like it and he was going to send a rebuke and he wanted to send it in person. And so he took Eddie Rickenbacker and said, hey, you go over there and you deliver, hand deliver this rebuke. So Eddie goes over there, flies over there and hand delivers this rebuke to General MacArthur. And then he gets on the B-17 bomber to head back across the Pacific and back home. Uh, On takeoff, the plane suffered some damage to its navigational gear. And without realising it, their B-17 was, was heading further and further off course until finally they realised they had no idea where they were and they were running out of fuel. They had to ditch the plane in the ocean with no awareness really of where they were. There were eight crew members, amazingly all eight crew members, that's, that's eight. <laughs> there were eight crew members, <laughs> two hands for that. They all survived And from the wreckage of the plane, they had gathered some stuff and they were able to stay together for the most part. For eight days, they floated around in the Pacific. No food and no water. And it was clear they were going to die out there. So Rickenbacker calls the eight and he says, hey, let's get together and let's... He was a man of faith. Let's have a prayer together. And let's, let's just pray together that God let us die peacefully. And so they got together and the fellows took hands and they began to pray on the eighth day. And as they bowed their heads and closed their eyes, Rickenbacker could kind of hear the flapping and feel the, the stirring of the air behind his head. And he thought, oh, there's a seagull. There's a seagull back there. He thought, if I can grab that thing, we might all be able to get another mouthful of food and last one more day. So he opens his eye and he kind of grabs this thing by the legs. And sure enough, and the fellas tore it apart and they, they ate the seagull. And then someone said, hey, we could use the entrails from this seagull, its innards, and maybe fish. 
And they got some wire that they had there on this debris and they fashioned a little hook and they, they started fishing and they started catching fish after fish after fish after fish. 24 days later, those six of the eight crewmen finally found themselves washed up on land and survived. In his retirement, Eddie Rickenbacker and his wife headed down to Key, Key Biscayne down in Florida. And he developed, a, developed an unusual routine on Friday afternoons. On Friday afternoons, he'd go down to a local pier and he'd take with him a bucket of shrimp. <laughs> and down there uh, on the end of the pier, he'd throw the shrimp in the air and the seagulls would come in. They'd go crazy for the shrimp. Every Friday, he'd throw it up and people would say... If you went down and stood close enough to the old man, you could actually hear him just muttering under his breath, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because he knew that it's only right to say thank you when your life has been saved. In every circumstance, give thanks, for this is God's will for you. Friends, what, what, what the Father has done for us on the cross deserves our gratitude every day. And maybe this morning you woke up and said, thank you, God, for a beautiful new morning. Thank you, God, for food on my table. Thank you, God, for, for health and strength that I can get to church even this morning. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That in my moment of deepest and greatest need, you saved me. What is God's will for our life? Oh, I don't know whether he wants you to buy this car or live in that house or marry that person or do that college degree. I've got no idea. But I can say with certainty this. Rejoice always. Keep your eyes looking to Jesus. Pray without ceasing. Keep your eyes open for what God is doing all around you. In everything give thanks and give thanks daily. That God has drawn you from the pit. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And what he wills for us, he blesses entirely. Hey, what's your next step this week? Maybe it's one of these three. And we'll reach out to him in that way. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we pause before you because... You are the one who has reached out and you have saved us. You have called us. You do change us. And Father, we, we bow before you this morning because you are the one in the midst of uh, the, the struggles of life, the heartaches and the disappointments of life, you are the one who can lift our eyes above that horizon to something else. Father, whatever we've brought in here this morning, whether it's some of the if-onlys and some of the what-ifs, whatever we've brought in with us this morning, help us to lay it before you right now. God, open our eyes to yourself that you might receive glory and that we might live life to the full. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.